Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. Thanks for joining us for part two of my conversation with Joelle Leon. We go further into what it means to build community, what this looks like, and what community is comprised of. He talks about the fact that each of us will be inspired to take action in our own unique ways. We will be called to particular causes, a particular way of expressing our fight. How, how we show up is personal, but he focuses on community, you know, irrespective of what an individual's specific purpose or focus might be. It all comes back to doing it together doing it within the collective. And something that I personally am having to continually remind myself is that things are not getting solved overnight, in a week, in a month, as much as we would like to see a ceasefire, to see an end to just the indescribable amount of harm and loss. It's just not something that is going to happen immediately. And I think this kind of this urgency partly comes from the fact that we do not want to see any more lives lost, period. But there's also an element of colonial urgency, of colonial thought patterns. And this feeling of we have to race to find the solution or else. And I think for me, that's sometimes what can pull me into despair, you know, pull me into overwhelm. And, you know, it's not that I would ever use that kind of emotional heaviness to say I'm tapping out, you know, I've, I push through, but I do need to be reminded now and again that this is a long haul. And, and I think this is why, like maybe it was in November or so, I saw a lot of Palestinians, journalists and activists saying endurance, we need endurance. You know, we need to build and maintain endurance. And as um, when Joelle draws upon the work of activists from decades ago, he looks at it as they have shown us the way. And he has this really beautiful analogy about planting seeds. You know, what? that's what we are all doing. And let us focus on what seeds can we plant now, knowing that they will sprout and bloom and provide sustenance and, and life sometime in the future. So... I deeply appreciate this resounding message of hope. As ever, I just love the lyricism of Joelle, and I hope you will too. I think it's important. I think I don't actually think it's a negative that there's still even a small part of you that is doesn't recoil, but is open to. I don't know. My, 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 my favorite community organizers are willing to be open to being proven wrong. And I think that's how we learn and grow and expand. So like, I'm gonna, I take things seriously. 
But also I'm discerning. I know when a bot is coming to me as opposed to a person that's like, listen, like, I, you know, there was someone who who I was following and they were following me and they came on my DMs about something. And they share, I remember it was, this is about Israel and they had shared, I had shared a clip of a film and they were like, you know, I, I didn't want to do this, but like, you know, when, this is the kind of disinformation with the misinformation we're talking about. Because this is a clip of the film that you show. This is like, this is Lebanese. This is like Lebanese kids. And like, I, I was like, oh, wait, let me, am I bugging? And what what she had missed was that the clip of, I can't remember what the film was, but it was in Lebanon. But the kids in the film were Palestinian refugees mm. who were pushed out of, and so, you know, it's that. And it's like, I could have easily sat and been like, okay, well, this person is a follower of mine. They're also Jewish. And I did, I was like, let me, I'm going to take this seriously. And then I went and did my due diligence and I was like, well, you know, no, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, and we respectfully unfollowed each other. And, but that's the thing she was, I'm not going to change her mind. And part of that is if we're thinking about this through the lens of indoctrination and if you're, if I've been going to Hebrew school every summer since I was six years old and I've been, and I've been reminded by my, my grandmother and my parents about the Holocaust. And I've been told a very specific history of Israel that does not include Palestinians. If I grow up to be my big age of 22, 30, and the world is essentially attacking this idea of a nation that I've created for myself, I'm going to get defensive about it. Like make America great again is no different. You know, you have folks who feel like their idea of America, a very racist, white supremacist America that they don't think it is, but is very much is that having that be attacked and Trump using that to his advantage in order to get votes because Trump doesn't care. You know, I, I tell people Trump is a racist by default. Trump is motivated by money and power. Racism is just a part of that conversation, but it's not the thing that leads what what makes him helps to make decisions. He's a manipulator. He's a master at it, actually. You know, he's, like, he's going to tell people the things that they want to hear and people eat it because it because people are dumb. <laughs> There's no way around it. It's like you can, if I'm, yeah. which, but there, but politicians are smart enough to know we gotta, we gotta, we gotta get these books out of here. Mm, yeah, <laughs> talk about slavery out of here. We gotta, we gotta get these books out of here that talk about the massacres of indigenous people. We gotta get these books in here that talk about Thanksgiving as a holiday that is a call for celebration. Juneteenth, what's that? You know, like it's all these ways to continue to manipulate the youth into thinking that this America is America we should take pride in. You know, the fact that I had to sing the, nat the, the you know, the, what was it? I pledge allegiance to the flag, United yeah. States of America, to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, for liberty and justice for all. I had to say that every single day in elementary school. I've never forgotten it. Yeah. That, is, that is how indoctrination works. That is, that is how propaganda works. I never even questioned that. And even until somebody else brought it up, actually in one of my recordings, uh, like a month ago, the Pledge of Allegiance. And I never thought about that. <laughs> that was It's like daily brainwashing at school. Daily, daily, daily. And like, you know, I remember Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, who started sitting out the national anthem, um, NBA basketball, former NBA basketball player, used to play for the Denver, Denver Nuggets. Incredible player. Him and he would just stopped. He stopped standing up for the national anthem. Like, you know, we're talking about a per like before Kaepernick, you know, Kaepernick, but you know, after John Carlos um and in the Olympic black black fist raise. But 
he did this around in the nineties and it ruined his career. And, I, and as a youngster, it didn't really make sense to me. Like I didn't understand what the big deal is, but protest, you know, protest and what does pro- active protest mean and active protest puts you in danger. You know, it, it, Dick Gregory deciding to go on a hunger fast or him trying to run across America in order to bring attention to the hunger crisis in America and racism in America and, and the civil rights movement. Like he risked his whole career in comedy because he knew that there was something bigger, you know, and, and that's, that is the call for us. It's, there is something bigger. It's happening right now. And if we're not paying attention to it and if we're not doing the work in order to change this course of direction, it is come, it is headed our way. It is, it, there is no, like it's, it's happening. And so it's the question becomes, what are we going to do about it? You know, and that's the work that I'm trying to be rooted in. Like, what are we going to do about it? Well, and to your point of, um, you know, like careers being affected, ruined when you stand up and there being actual risks. Like, do you personally have fear around speaking up? Not necessarily. I mean, I'll try to be really careful with the language I choose here, but I, I work for an institution that it could, it could, but I worry less about that. And I worry more about, you know, there's a privilege. We talked about this earlier. There's a privilege I have, you know, to even be able to show up and do this work and have these conversations, you know, even in my blackness, you know, there's still that privilege of a platform that I've created the financial privilege I do have. And so also knowing I'm laying to my feet. So I, I, I'm not really too worried about that. I, I think I'm also very much rooted in the reality of who I am. Like I have a big mouth. I'm way more valuable to keep than let go. And like letting go of me as a person and a personality just doesn't really serve anyone well, I think. And and really that's because of the platform. I didn't grow my platform to protect myself in that way, but I'm aware of what a call out from community can do in order to protect people. Um, And so like, there's a part of me that's like, I I feel okay wherever I land because the work is more, the work that I'm, the work that we're doing collectively is more important than the work that I can do within a nine to five space. Um, There's probably some fear. It happens. It it pops up in my head, but it's minimal. The, the, my biggest, my big, I'm, I would be more worried if I wasn't saying anything, you know, my biggest fear is Palestinians not being able to come return home, you know, and, that's a feeling I do not understand. I can I can walk around Bed-Stuy freely, walk my dog. Like I, I don't have there's none of that, those concerns. Like what am I? What are we gonna eat today? That's that's a way harder conversation to have than like you gonna lose your job, you know? And yeah, I got a family to take care of, but I'll figure it out like that. So to me, like that's that's small potatoes compared to like the bigger work at play. I remember when I in, in like October. I would be at my son's school, not know who might have been following me, who may have seen something I posted. My son came home one day and was like, mom, are we anti-Semitic? And I was like, no, why? He's like, somebody asked me because they said that you're pro-Palestine. And I'm, I still, to the, I don't really know. I don't know if it was totally random. I don't know if the yeah. kids, kids were just talking or if it was like an informed question, but he, he, you know, he relayed a very specific conversation to me. And so I'd be at school and I'm like, who knows, you know, who's, 
Yeah. Who's, or who here knows something about my views and thinks something about me and my family and and like being scared, but also wanting to like engage in conversation. Um, yeah. But mostly going back to being scared and just kind of like hiding. <laughs> and um, yeah. And but yes, like as you say, it's I'd feel more afraid and just unable to live with myself with not saying anything. So I guess that's like the choices that we're making during the time of multiple genocides in the world. Like none of it's going to feel good. You know, you're no. like, it's it's all going to come with this um, just heavy responsibility with the privilege that we have. How does, um, do you talk to your, so you said your daughters are four and eight. Do you talk to either of them? I feel like four-year-olds maybe too young. Is the eight-year-old yeah, too young? Four-year-old is too young. The four-year-old is too young, but the eight-year-old is not she's been asking me now to watch Palestine videos. Mm. We started watching, like I showed her a video, like history of Palestine. And like, I think the first video we watched was like the, it was uh, talking about the first Nakba. Mm. And then in that conversation, we talked a little bit, her and I talked about the six day war and like, we're probably going to watch, like she's requesting it. She wants to yeah. know more. Mine does too. And you know, yeah, I, I didn't really grow up in a political household. You know, my, my we didn't talk politics in the house. My mom was kind of the person that something came on a news she'll point to it, but we were left leaning. I've been I've made it a point to like talk to my el my oldest about this stuff because I want her to have a deeper understanding of things and also that allows her to have agency. Yeah. Like she can choose what she wants to believe in, who she wants to believe in with information. I have to inform her, you know, and I had to have a conversation with her. We kept them, we kept them out of school, mm -hmm. you know, not for nothing during the global strike. And so mm -hmm. having to have a conversation with her as to why that was happening in the first place. And then also having to remind her, unfortunately, to be like, listen, I don't want you talking about why we kept you out of school when you go back on Tuesday. Yeah. What I don't want is for you to be labeled as an anti-Semite. Or that to get around and then that, that creating a bigger controversy at, at school for us, really for her more than anything, you know? So just being mindful of that. But yeah, absolutely. Talk like if I'm if I'm sitting with it and rather not sitting with it because there's other things that I don't talk to her about. But if it's a thing that I feel like is impact is going to impact her, then we absolutely need to have a conversation about it, you know? I, I do tell my son the same thing. Like he asks me questions I answer in as age appropriate of a way as I can. Sometimes I have to, because I'm crying, you know, and he's like, he's like, are you thinking about Palestine? And I'm, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, you know, and he kind of gives me, I'm like, how did you know? And he's like, well, you know, but, um, I have to tell him like, don't, I don't want you talk, talking about this at school. Like adults have a hard enough time talking about it in like an inclusive enough way without inadvertently perpetuating stereotypes or hateful speech or, you know, like I'm still learning. So how, how can I expect my child to engage in these kind of conversations at school? Um, so it's a weird thing to inform him and to also drive home the message of like, your friend whose mom was born in Israel is not a bad person. You know, this is not about like, that and and thankfully he gets it. He's he actually said to me like this is a, actually a specific uh, actual real friend a family, and he was like oh so so's mom is like one of the nicest people I know and you know I know that she's actually for a free Palestine, um but she's born and raised in Israel so I mean it's good that he's kind of seeing that it's not this 
oh, all people from here are bad and all people from here are good or whatever, the, that there's complexity, there's complexity in that, not in, not in like what's happening, but, you know, in like our identities. And it was like this during, um, I talked to him about uh, when George Floyd was murdered, he was only six at the time, but I was so, you know, like, well, again, crying all the time. And um, that's when I first started talking to him very explicitly about what it means to not be white in this country. Because mm -hmm. we're not white, you know, we're not white. And well, my husband is white, but my kids look very Asian. Like they do not look white at all. And he's kind of like, oh, should I be scared of the police? And then trying to explain mm -hmm. to him like, well, actually, police don't tend to do the same thing to Asian mm -hmm. people and him being like, well, I don't get it. Why? I'm not white either. And just like trying to have these conversations um, with with uh, with him because I know that it's important. I mean, I'm just doing the best that I can, but it's it's very hard. And he asks like very I think kids ask very good, rational questions. Absolutely. You know, and, like, and he's he sometimes like be like. In the, he tans really well. So he gets very brown in the summer. And he would be like, am I, he's like, am I like black now? Am I like, <laughs> you know? Um, Cause like his skin gets really, he gets really dark. And cause to him, it doesn't make sense. Like people are just people. And if I'm, if I'm explaining to him that people are treated differently based on their skin color, he takes that literally, you know? And it's like, well, is my skin color changing? So am I, you know, am I? And that's it. But that's the thing, too. It's like to your point, like kids just ask really pointed questions, you know, and that point. And because they're curious by default and they just want to know. And so they're not going to beat around the bush. Like the thing that's confusing to them is the conversation used to have a lot when I would like be on like a panel about parenting or something. It's I would tell people, you know. If I told Lila uh, a table was a rainbow, she would believe that until further notice mm -hmm. because she trusted me mm. with language, trusted mm. me with identifying things in that way. And so because of that, we have a responsibility to our children because they're going to they're gathering information. And so part of that is like I'll like when I'm explaining to Lila what autonomy means, the first time I was explaining it to her, I had to realize and recognize that. See, there was language that I was going to try to use that she didn't know to describe what autonomy means. So I have to break it down to the simplest means possible. And I think that's just a helpful exercise for us because we can get really, we can have these very convoluted expl explanations of a thing, but it's something I've thought about and you kind of touched on it. I've been saying from jump, like, this is not complex. We're talking about this as a genocide. This is not complex. I think the, um, our feelings about it are right. And like, that is a fair assessment, I think. And, and it doesn't mean people aren't held accountable, but if, again, if I'm the person that's been indoctrinated since birth, really to believe in a certain thing and I'm having that thing challenged, I need to be, it, 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 it behooves me to be a bit more open about what, why that thing, why that thing is a thing. And why people are showing up for this conversation in the ways that they are. And that just allows for more, it does allow for more compassion. It allows for more empathy. But at the end of the day, that's, that's I think, what's required in order for us to have healthier conversations about these things. And hold space and know that the person, I don't want to say right or wrong, but like you're the way you're seeing this is actually not the way it's happening. And I think 
some people don't think that's important, but I think there's a collective shift that happens when even if a person doesn't, and again, this kind of goes back to the good faith argument, it doesn't mean that we're arguing with these people and trying to convince them. What I think it does mean is that we're just creating more space and opportunity for other people to show up. And it might not be that person. It might be somebody else, you know? I hear you thinking about the language you're using with your children too, and under, you know, realizing that you need to make it make sense to them, like using the word autonomy. And you're like, wait, 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 I need to like make it make sense to them. And I feel like you have that same mentality, even speaking out on social, I'm sure through all that your other writing work, is this something where language has been like something of like interest that you know that you've always understood the power of it and um yeah I'd love to just like n- make mention of your book that's coming out very soon which is wildly exciting um do you know books are magic I've heard I, I, I've heard of it but I'm not I don't think I'm too familiar so there's um there's two locations I believe they're both in Brooklyn I think um and I yeah I I try to get all my books from the local bookstores and so I I typed your book I typed your name in online to pre-order it and it didn't come up so I wrote an email I'm like can I have a can I make a request and um they're like of course what is it and then they wrote me back they're like oh no we already have it it was the accent on Joel's the e in your name that was that like I think they had it in properly you know they had it with the accent so when I typed it in um it didn't come up but they fixed it so I was able to uh, pre-order it from that bookstore. If we're talking about collective liberation, thank you for doing that, hmm. Leah. Because what I think about is the extra step that we have to take sometimes. And so, like for me, that extra step sometimes is as simple as if someone has a GoFundMe that I see, right, and I want to share it because I know I have a large platform, and maybe somebody will benefit from seeing this and donating. Like what we'll do is we'll say link in the bio. So it's my job to then go into the link, right copy that and then paste that on the post I'm going to share in stories. But it's like the extra step required mm-hmm. in order to get, to make sure that people don't have to do the labor. Mm-hmm. I'm that for you. And I think that's a part of the conversation. It's like, Oh, I see a thing. I'm going to address the thing, you know? Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, it's just natural for me and I was happy to do it. And now everyone can find it through that big store, but You've always just, I'm guessing, had this love of words, right? It's been your, have you always been a writer? Has that always been your work? Your Yeah, I think, so. I mean, I've I've been a writer. I've been a writer since, I mean, I didn't really consider myself a writer. I think I considered myself, like I was a rapper before anything else. And then what I would do is essentially like write poems and put those things together. And then it, it wasn't until later. Like I'd always been writing, but it wasn't until like my early 30s where I was like, oh, I think there's a career here. And there's like there's a way for me to pursue that. And there's a way for me to like take language and find ways to like get get myself free, first and foremost. And um, utilizing that as a means to collectively get us free. So much of the work of which flavor do you want? Do you want? Okay, Wes, when Wes wants a thing, she just yells. Wes doesn't have a... There's no like middle ground. <laughs> yeah. There's no middle ground for her. And I think it's a very interesting case study for the conversation we're having now because for so many, so many folks, it's like you're yelling into the void. Mm. There is no ground. There is no, okay, well, it's it's opposite extremes. And like we see that so often on social, where it's like it's this or that. Mm. And it's like 
nine out of ten, everything is nuanced. There's there's a there's a large there's there's so much context and nuance that gets left out of these conversations, that gets left out of these disagreements because we feel so beholden to this thing that we've defined as a truth. And so like West is like, West is like, I'm hungry. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, we have to find a solve for that. And you're giving her all these options. And she's still like, I'm no, it's not this. It was like, okay, well, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I don't know how to help you here. Um, but like I feel like we see this a lot on social though, too. It's like folks are not really <laughs> folks are not invested or interested in again, good faith arguments and conversations. They just want to be right. You know, and so much of like my writing has been trying to move and shy away from like you're right or you're wrong or this mm-hmm. is bad or this is that's very much in Buddhism. But so but it's really about how how do we put forward new ways of being and thinking and, and granted it's not necessarily new, you know. Like we can look at Bell Hooks, Audrey Lord, you know, the poets who I love, like the Murray Barakas and the Nikki Giovanni's of the world, folks who are using language to unpack societal truths or things we thought to be true. You know, um, and like I, I'm, I, I'm part of that conversation. Agent Monet is a part of that conversation. Oh, that's awesome! Um, I do love popcorn. Thank you. <laughs> and then and now she's like the, the kindest person in the world. When I had her on, you know the way she was. I, I can imagine mine are the same. So yeah, I can. Like, who are you? <laughs> Who's this devil child that we brought into the But it, it's because she feels completely safe to express her true self with her with her dad. You know, that's what I that's what I hear when my kids treat me treat me with like total disrespect and tantrum or wine or you know, it's like you made them feel so safe. That's why. That's like I'm so I'm like okay. Uh, I guess it's a reward then for being yeah, for, thanks. for like showing my unconditional love and acceptance. I just get I just get screamed at. Yeah, um, I mean if that's the case. Now I need you to be. You mean make you like, a little like, unsafe? Yeah, yeah like ridiculous. like a little balance, right? But um, yeah, come on, like stop yelling at me. <laughs> I do. You know, like I going back to all these great writers, thinkers, you know, revolutionaries um, from throughout time. Does it make you feel, uh, so I, when I, when I'm, I'm like reading Bell Hooks and I just didn't read much of her work before. I've been making lots of trips to that bookstore um, over the past four months just to ed- educate, inform, be inspired, find strength, you know? And on the one hand, I'm like, yes, I love this. This speaks to my soul. Yes. I, this, is like where I want, this is like where I want to be. This is where I want to act from. But then on the other hand, I get a bit like, wait, we're in the same fight that they were in going back decades and decades and generations, and generations. Like, doesn't that mean nothing has changed, you know? And, and then it's sort of like, wait, I, I start to feel almost like hopeless. Like, are we just going to be read in decades from now? And people thinking like, oh, nothing's changed. Do you feel like there are signs of progress? And should we have, you know, should we keep having hope? I mean, I think if I'm, you know, I think about the work of Grace Lee Boggs and and, and James Lee Boggs. Yes. And- you introduced me to them. I can't believe I never, I can't believe I never knew who they were. I cannot believe. But um, yes, I've been reading. And James, you know, passed away prematurely, you know, relatively early. And so I think the only unfortunate part of this is I think James kind of sometimes gets cut off from the conversation, but James and Grace together were doing some phenomenal work separately before they became partners. 
then right but you know the this idea that progress isn't linear is the thing that i've just been kind of carrying with me ever since i read it and it's true because we we tend to think it is like this and it's you know like we're in another cycle of a season and so there's a rolling back you're rolling back of roe versus wade civil rights voting acts like the all these things that we're like oh what what are we doing here but that is unfortunately the natural ebb and flow of existence of humanity. There's always going to be, you know, if we're talking about this through the lens of the yin and the yang, there's always going to be tension. That tension, unfortunately, as, as hard and as harsh as it is, is also healthy. If we did not have the tension, we would not know what good looked like because there needs to be an opposite polarizing effect on the, on the others. I mean, ideally it wouldn't be as violent as what we are seeing right now. Like when we're, we're seeing banned books, we're seeing all these other things, these other elements that are kind of essentially feel that, that not even feels like regression. It is, we are regressing, you know, but the idea that folks couldn't vote in general, granted the ways in which folks are trying to prevent others from voting have changed, right? Like, you know, when we think about, the idea that women could not vote, like, you know, like you and I having this conversation in general, like would have been normal, but like me going outside and walking on one side of the street, like, so to say that there's been no progress, I think is a fallacy. It's a falsehood. It's not, and it doesn't do justice to the work of our ancestors and, and forefathers and mothers and forebears before prior to, you know, cause things have changed, you know, that it's, it's, it's not, it's not congruent with the reality of history. You know, if we say that things haven't changed, I think some things have and some things haven't, you know, and some things have become more difficult, unfortunately, you know, and, you know, if we're like we've, I've heard some scholars say that this is this is like we haven't seen this much turmoil since the 60s. And if anything, this is more more so. Um, and I think some of that is exacerbated with social media. And I think there's just more people. And I think that's the thing I try to think about everything in context. We're living longer larger populations. And because of that, there's more work required in order to sustain mobility. You know, it's, it's, you know, if you have a George Wallace, you know, this, this pig of a governor who's probably, who died whenever he died, but like folks just weren't living as long. Races weren't living as long either. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it, but, and so if we're not looking at things through the lens of the context in which they're happening, we're missing how we get to actually chart progress. But it's, and so like, that's for me, that's where the hope is. It's like, this is not new. It feels new to us because we are the generation feeling it. But if I'm a student of history, which I, I think I am, I'm not a master student, but I'm a pretty good student of it. It's like, oh, this is not new. The amount of, the amount of times we've looked at it, the, the amount of times my mom has been like, this is the end of days, you know? Like, you know, her Bible, you know, like it's the end of days. You were saying that in 1990s, you were saying that in 2000s. Say, so, okay, mom, you know, I, as a person who's not biblical, but has some knowledge of running knowledge of the Bible, I'd also argue that the end of days as we know it, I don't necessarily know if the writers of the text were speaking to these things that are going to end the world. But I think end the end of the world as we know it is also the ending of a thing. It's a cycle. You know, when that thing ends, it's a new a new world will begin. But like that world, I don't think is. I mean, granted, we're seeing the literal, literal ending of the world as we speak, and so that's a scarier conversation. But at the end of the day, it's like, how do we hold space for the cycles, for things to pass and things to start? You know, like it's the ebb and flow of it all. I think it's like a 
actual, actually a colonial understanding of history, like wanting it to be this linear chronology and looking at it at like this idea of progress, like, oh, it should just be like this then. And, but that's, that's a, that's like a colonial paradigm, like to think of it that way. Right. And well, I'm glad that, I'm glad that we can land on hope and I think keep focusing on community. I hear that as a major lesson and a major message of yours. And even just through connecting with people online virtually, it does feed my soul and it does refuel me. And so it that is an energy, that is an actual energy that is being put out and received. And yeah, I mean, and then like it, it's probably not gonna happen in this lifetime. Um, that's you know, every generation says that, but if I'm thinking of my folks who were, some of my folks who were brought here on my father's side and some of my folks who maybe migrated here from the Caribbean, but who were also enslaved, you know, and were under, under colonial rule. Again, things are different. They still feel the same in certain regards and a lot of regards, but, you know, if you can, listen, if you can go to your local bodega or your local Whole Foods and buy a thing or pick up a thing, you know, there's privilege in that. There's freedom in that. You know, we're seeing a rise in, in, in the houseless population, unemployment, you know, discrimination at work, all these other things. And But like these new systems also invite new ways for oppressors to oppress, which requires more diligence and more work on our part as community members to look out and take care of each other and not be dependent on these other systems because they're not there. The police are not here to save us. Politicians are not here to save us. Like we have to save ourselves, you know? And like that, that is always going to be the biggest takeaway for me. And that's going to be the biggest takeaway I always want to continue to offer people. It's if you think you go into the voting booth is the thing that's going to change this, then you are sadly mistaken. And also you are part of the problem. Like, you know, cause like I can vote for Hakeem Jeffries, but if APAC is giving Hakeem Jeffries $300,000 in support of his campaign, Hakeem Jeffries is not supporting us. He's supporting APAC. And so it comes back to not even like, well, we got to put the right politicians in place because we felt like we had that with AOC. And again, the system do what the system is supposed to do. Good people, you know, a person who was fighting on the streets of Chicago for, for, for housing tenants and winds up one day becoming the president of the United States still becomes a part of a war criminal, criminal, criminalized institution, right? Like you can't, this idea that we're going to get into the system and change. No, you got to, the system needs to burn down. It's like, if you, if this was, if we were talking about a school, if the school was failing, we wouldn't keep funding the school. The school would be closed, which is, that's what we would do. But like, we still think that this constitution that was written by a bunch of racist slave owning women, hating white men, is in somehow, some way, shape, or form actually democratic and in service of people. Get the fuck out of here. I'm not worried about that. I'm like, how are we, how are we saving each other? You know? And the more we can share resources, share tools, build together, you know, we can we can look at and reimagine the way it created in a new system. You know, but we have to be in community first in order to do that. And to know that it's not happening overnight. <laughs> Right. Just yeah, like no. gotta have the real long, long-term endurance in it. I think. Yeah, teach not Han. Like no mud, no lotus. Like you you can't the seeds you the, the seeds do not bear fruit tomorrow. 
you know, and like you have to be invested in that process if you're really trying to harvest, you know, and like I'm here for the harvest, you know, even if I don't get to see all of it, like maybe my girls will, maybe their grandkids will, who knows, but like it doesn't mean we stop planting the seeds, you know, like there's like if we're if we're thinking about this and if we're playing the long game for the thing of the macro, then it's like it's not just about what's happening now. You know, what's happening now is important, but it's just it's 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 water for, for the seeds we're planting for tomorrow, too, you know. And that's why going back to the beginning of our conversation, it's important to have the joy and the celebration and like that being present is all of it, because if it's not going to just be something you could, oh, fix overnight, like, let me just be really focused on this problem, fix it, and then I'll be happy and then I'll experience joy. Well, that's not going to it's not going to doesn't work that way. So I can understand because I really struggle with this. Like, how do I how can I possibly be joyful right now? Even though I know I hear I hear the messaging from everybody and I, I believe it. You know, I, I, I it makes sense. And like I said, my kids, thankfully, because I want to at least be that for them. I want to create like joy for them. So that keeps me connected to it. But for myself, it's really hard. But if I think of it in this way of this is what is going to be a part of the fuel of the watering of the seeds in the in the long term then i think i could do it i think that cuz i get so worried of just like i don't want to be so self-concerned and self-consumed you know like and and i do care about the collective and everybody else that's in more need and it's such a struggle for me to understand that it's not mutually exclusive for sure. But, um, it's, yeah. And, and that's the process, you know, that's part of the process. Thank you so much. You're, you're just such a gem. I'm so, just so humbled and excited to be in community with you officially. Yeah. And Leah, I'll send, I didn't realize you were in New York. I'll send you like, there's an event we have coming at the end of February. I'll send you the yes. phone, but we just updated it on um, Instagram, but oh, it's the month, like the, this monthly event I do in Bed-Stuy. I will, I will do everything I can to be there. I would love to, I would love to do that. Yeah. I'll send you a fly when we get off. All right. Thanks so much, Joelle. Thanks so much for joining us on Voices on the Side. I know that you have so many podcasts to choose from and there's so much going on in everyone's lives. So it really means a lot to have your support. If you can take a couple extra moments to subscribe and rate and maybe even drop us a review, it would help us so much to get this fledgling podcast out into the world. Take good care and see you soon.